Friends, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to lesson number three of This Can Happen. Um, as we always begin, I'd like to thank our very generous um, sponsors of this course. Um, we have Eve Bogan, Sarah Howell and David Leon, Bill and Pam Lewis, Joy Maxey, Jay and Susan Rosenheck, Ronnie and Madeline Spiegelman, and Roger and Isla Wartel, thank you very much. I also want to mention that we also have a very special birthday wish to David Lazan. Um, uh, Danielle Seligman uh, wanted to especially uh, give special uh, birthday wishes um, to you, David. Happy birthday, and indeed, it should be a fantastic year of celebration and life and blessing for you and the whole Mishpacha, the whole family should be blessed with all the blessings that you all need. And Lisa, blessings to you as well. And uh, only, only good things, only, only reveal blessings this year. Okay, so we begin now lesson number three. As you know, this course is all about the Jewish belief in a better world, in a better future, in a perfected world, and in, in a perfected future. This is what we call Mashiach, or in English, maybe the Messianic era, same idea, Hebrew-English. This is the Jewish belief, the fierce, unwavering Jewish belief in a better time, in a better world. And I must begin on a personal note. Um, we spoke a little bit about this uh, a, few a few moments ago, before we formally started the class, but I had a powerful role model for this belief in my grandfather, who just passed away last Sunday. Um, and who was a, a very, very integral part of my life. Um, I've said this before, everything I know is because of him. Mom and you, obviously, you know. <laughs> um, but really, he was, he played such an important, such an, such a, 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 a just, Sorry. yes. Everything I know is from him. There you go. So, so either way, either way it goes back to him. Goes back. And, uh, and, and, I, and I must say that he really exemplified this belief, this fierce belief and not only belief in, in a theoretical way, but a real trust in Mashiach in a better world. He, would, he was a Kohen uh, from the priestly family, and he was a Shochet, a ritual slaughter. And as you may know, the Kohen in the temple would do some ritual slaughtering back in the day. And we believe, we'll have this in one of the later classes, Lesson 5 and 6, we'll talk about the temple, rebuilding the temple, and all that stuff. So. He was always looking forward to the opportunity to, to serve in the third temple when it's rebuilt with uh, the coming of Mashiach in the Messianic era. And he would ask practical questions like, you know, the, are the floor, how cold are the floors going to be? You know, because they would serve barefoot. He, it was something that he lived with and we were certain that he was going to go straight into, into that role. And unfortunately we had the, uh, an, an interruption in that, in that direct connection, that direct um, unbroken flow from, you know, from life on earth into the temple with his passing, but certainly he, for me, was a role model of someone who, to whom Mashiach was not just a theory, a possibility, a hope, or a dream, but something that was a real reality. In fact, in, his, in, in the last number of years, um, his, one of his mottos was, be Matzliach and bring Mashiach. Matzliach means be successful. Be matzliach, be successful, and bring Mashiach. It has a nice ring to it in the Hebrew. Um, so I, I miss him dearly, and I know soon we will be reunited again with the coming of Mashiach. Again, a topic that we'll speak about 
in the sixth lesson, in the resurrection of those who have departed. It's also a topic we've spoken of before in other contexts, but it'll come up in this class, in this course as well. So, as I said, this course is all about the Jewish belief in the Messianic era. And in our first lesson, we were off last week. I was off last week. We didn't have class, so I'm just going to quickly recap the first two sessions, what we spoke about. The first lesson, we spoke about the physical promises of the Messianic era, a world free of pain and strife, a world filled only with goodness and peace. And we also saw in lesson one how uh, more than ever today we are closer than ever to the realization of these promises, even on a very practical physical level, although the world is not perfect by any means. But the, these, a lot of these ideas and prophecies that seem perhaps so outlandish in the past are actually somewhat within reach. We can actually perceive it as being something that we could, can, and are heading toward. So that was lesson one. Lesson two, two weeks ago, we spoke about the spiritual promises of the Messianic era. We talked about how that is a world filled with the knowledge of God, with um, saturated with divine awareness. And in lesson two, I mentioned that really the two elements are intertwined, the spiritual and the physical. And in fact, one leads to the other. A world that is connected with its spiritual identity, a world in which um, it, it, its spiritual truth is clear to it, that type of world is at, and, and humanity that lives in that world is at peace with itself and at peace with each other and perfectly aligned to be open without any type of interruption to receive the blessings, the physical blessings as well. So this week, in our third lesson, we are going to take a deeper dive into the spiritual state of the Messianic era and address the following three questions and others as well, but primarily three questions. Question number one, what exactly does a spiritually aligned world look like? I mean, it's a, nice, it's a nice statement, perhaps. It sounds nice. It's a nice buzzword. We're waiting for the world to be spiritually aligned. What does that actually mean? A, what does a spiritually aligned world actually look like? Number one. Number two, how can you and I make that, that world or that vision, how can we make it a reality? And question number three, how does the awareness of this mission, of our mission in making this, spirit, making this world a spiritually transformed space, how does that radically transform who and what we are right now? So in short, what we're going to do today is we're going to learn how reality itself is transformed and how that knowledge can transform us. So again, those are the two major ideas. Number one, how is reality transformed? And two, how does that, how does that knowledge transform us? All right, so this is an epic class. We have so much to talk about and so much to get to, so let's begin. I want to begin by telling you a story. Story time. So settle in, get relaxed. Everyone loves a good story. This is a story. And as I tell you this story, I want you to pay attention. I, um, Jerry, it's not a joke story. It's, it's actually a story. No, it's a parable story. All right, you'll, you'll see. It's a different type of story. So as I tell you this story, here's your, my job is to tell the story. Your job is to pay attention to the story. And I want you to check in with yourself. Ask yourself how you feel about the story. Because after I finish telling the story, I'm going to ask you 
So how do you feel about the story? So as I tell the story, I want you to think about how you feel about the story that I'm telling you. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It makes sense to me at least. All right, so listen to the story and then think about how you feel about the story. All right, here's the story. There was once a king. And this king was a very powerful king, a mighty king, but also a very beloved king. And he ruled over a beautiful kingdom. It was gorgeous. But there was one problem. There was this massive mountain smack in middle of the kingdom. And this mountain, I don't know how else to say it, it got in the way of things. Like if you wanted to go from one place to another, you had to go around the mountain. Right? Sometimes you had to go over the mountain. It's like a pain. Who wants to go up and down? This is before they invented ski slopes, right? So this mountain's in the middle of the way. And what are you going to do? How you go, have to go around the mountain? It drove the king bananas. It drove him a sugar. It was driving him crazy. All he wanted was the mountain to be gone. And he was thinking, how can I get rid of the mountain? I mean, he's the king after all, but he can't just, you know, wave his... Kings don't have wands, do they? No, scepter. There we go. Sorry, fairies of wands, kings of scepters. He can't just, I'm just getting, my, that's for myself. So he can't just wave his scepter and say, be gone, uh, mountain. It's not, it doesn't work exactly like that, even though he's the king. So he had to come up with a strategy. So this is what he came up with. He crafted a message and sent it out to everyone in his kingdom. You know, like the royal messengers with those scrolls, with the hear ye, hear ye's. Yeah, okay. So he sent out the message. And what was the message? Hear ye, hear ye. The king wishes to notify everyone that there is a treasure buried in the mountain somewhere. And whoever finds it gets to keep it. That's it. That's all you need to say, right? Those folks that from San Francisco can relate to this, right? Some gold rush action. All you say is, yes. There's treasure, you know, FYI, there's treasure in the mountain. If you want it, you can go find it. Next thing you know, everyone's running. They got the fever. They got that gold rush fever. They got it good. And they're going with shovels and spades and bare hands. And everyone is frantically digging and sifting and, you guessed it, clearing away the mountain inch by inch. This plan is working swimmingly, right? Everyone's digging and you can dig, you sort, no treasure, let's get rid of it. Truckloads are being dumped. I don't know where they're dumping it because that could make another mountain, but whatever, maybe they're just creating a, you know, a, fl a flatter place that's a little bit higher. You know how it works when they pave a street and just make it higher and higher and higher. Eventually you're like, where's the curb? Anyway, so they, they just, the, the mountain starts clearing away little by little. And the mountain got lower and lower, no treasure. So they kept on digging. It got lower and lower, no treasure. Finally, a little bit left, and everyone's like, we're going to get the treasure. It's probably all the way at the bottom. No treasure. The mountain is gone. It's cleared. It's hauled away. There's nothing left of the mountain, and there's no treasure. And now the people are very angry. They're upset. I mean, it's hard to be upset at the king because it's dangerous, but they were upset at the king. And they turn to the king, and they say to the king, what's up? I don't know if that's exact, I'm paraphrasing. Like, what, what's going on? You told us there's a treasure. Where's the treasure? There's no treasure. The king says, okay, 
king sends out a second message. And the second message says, <coughs> indeed, there was no treasure in the mountain, but in appreciation for the work that you all did in clearing away the mountain that I wanted gone, I will give each and every one of you that dug up, that, that got rid of the mountain, I will give each one of you riches and, and rewards and wealth and treasure. That is what the king says to the people. And he gave them their treasure and they were happy. Or he gave them the treasure and they took it. So I want to ask you a question. You know my question. I told you I was going to ask you a question. At this point, I told you like five times. So at this point, you should definitely know my question. My question is, so how do you feel about the story? How do you feel about the king in this story? It's an open-ended question. At this point, feel free to unmute. He was, he was deceptive, but with a purpose. Deceptive with a purpose. Sneaky, but calculated. Okay? How does that make you feel? I guess, I guess we're saying here that the, uh, that, the, that the end is justified by the means, I guess. That's very uh, Machiavellian, right? Yeah, sorts, yeah. All right. How, how do you feel about that? You feel good or not so good about that? Not good. The result was, the result was good. All right. Uh, if, you, if you were digging the mountain, yeah, this is, for, again, for everybody. If you were digging the mountain, how would you feel about this? I would have rather been told that there was a reward that I would give everyone who participates rather than being deceived to do the work. Right. Okay, good. All right, what else? Who else? Who else has something to share? Sylvia. I think, why did he have to lie? That was the same thing. Uh, he could have just been up front. Right. I'm hiring workers to, anyway. yeah, I'm hiring workers to clear away the mountain. Excellent. Good. Good. What else? <coughs> Well, but this he, king was smart. He was uh, really, really smart. Because um, if the people didn't think that the treasure was somewhere in the mountain, they wouldn't have dug nearly as hard. So <laughs> I have to give him some credit. So you're saying he w it was calculated and it was intentional? Okay, but how do you feel? It was clever and smart. It's clever and smart. How do you feel if you were, if you were one of the people that was digging for the treasure and it turned out not, that was, it, was, it was never there? How would you feel about that at the end? He made up for it by giving them all something. Okay, okay, so you're saying that it's, uh, at the end it's okay. Okay. I have, a, I have something to say. Sure. This is, this is a king we're talking about. A king does not necessarily think, oh, you know, uh, about a motive of a subject. He thinks like a king. Right, he's, he's, it's got to get done and this is how we're going to do it. Well, he, he, he thinks like a king, and the king says, this is the way, this is what I want done, and this is the way to do it. Right. That's it. He doesn't, he doesn't go into the, uh, he doesn't, he, that's not his, you know. So he's not jumping into the mindset of. He's not a politician. He doesn't have to go into the mind of his subject. Right. He doesn't have approval ratings. He's the king. He can do what he wants. Okay. But we can. I'm not saying I agree with him. I understand. I'm but. Just, his point of view. I'm with you. That could engender, though, some negative feelings from uh, on the part of the populace. Okay. 
So here, here is my thoughts. This is a parable, not a true story, but it's, it's something to get us thinking. And I, I want to tell you how I think, what I think about this. I think that this project, this, um, this yeah, I guess project, simply wasn't honest. They were told there was treasure on the inside of the mountain, and there was no treasure. It was located somewhere else. The treasure was not intrinsic. It was extrinsic. It wasn't inside. It was outside. There was treasure. There was treasure that came as a result of digging the mountain, but it wasn't in the mountain. It wasn't part of the mountain. It was elsewhere, and that makes it dishonest. This story opens, I think, it allows us to understand what is one of the most important truths and most profound truths about the Jewish understanding of the Messianic era. This is going to be the first big idea of tonight. There's going to be about two or three really big ideas. What I'm about to share with you is, if you keep in track at home, this is big idea number one. Big idea number one is that God has told us that our job is to make this world a better place. And God promises us that if we put in enough work and the right type of work, we're going to find this treasure of a perfect world, this treasure of Mashiach. In other words, it's going to be the world that we create through our actions. And where is this world? It's right here. God is not telling us to dig a mountain that has no treasure. That would be a big lie. God is not saying, do this, do that, do the other, put in the effort, make the world a better place, but this world is never really going to get perfected. This world, <laughs> no, we're going to have to bring in something else, like from Mars or from Jupiter, whatever it is, we're going to have to bring something else, and then that's going to be Mashiach, but this you're just, you're digging a mountain, but the reward is coming from elsewhere. That is not the Jewish understanding of Mashiach. That's not what God is telling us. And that's not, because that's not honest. What the, the Jewish understanding of Mashiach, what God is telling us is, dig this mountain, work, and we're going to talk about the nature of this work, because that's very vague. What am I supposed to be doing? Dig with a shovel? What exactly am I doing? So we'll talk about that. We'll clarify that. Uh, um, in this class. That's the next big idea that we'll speak of. But as of right now, what I'm trying to share is that Mashiach is the idea that it's through our effort, through our work, that this world is transformed into a, perfect, a perfected place, spiritually and physically. This is huge. And I hope it's coming across through the screens, through Zoom. I hope this, the radical nature of this idea is coming through. Mashiach is not some sort of supernatural state completely foreign to this reality that is going to be flown in or superimposed at a certain point in time. No. Mashiach is the ideal state or the core of the world that is right in front of us. And our job is simply to dig and expose the treasure and expose the truth that this hunk of earth that we call planet earth is precious and priceless and beautiful. Going back to the example of the king, it's, it, and we have to modify the example even a drop. It's not that inside the mountain there's a treasure. It's even deeper than that. The mountain is the treasure. And it's by digging, and we'll define digging in a moment, 
Spiritual digging, we'll define what that is. But it's through digging in this mountain that we discover that this mountain is precious, is valuable. Not that it's going to be rewarded, that our efforts will be rewarded externally or extrinsically, but rather that this mountain itself, this planet, it's, this world itself is the greatest treasure. This is a game-changing idea, and it's captured in some classic texts. Um, I'm going to, if you have a book, open it up, please. Skipping an exercise in a text. All right, we're going to start with 99. We're going to start with page 99. Give me a quick moment here while I pull it up. Um, let me get this going here on my end. Okay, here we go. Page 99. Okay, I'm going to pull this up. It just, I feel like it's a little bit easier for, for those that don't have the book handy or if you want to read along on the, on, the, um, on the screen. So I'm going to share my screen with you. And let's jump right in. All right. Um, Jerry, if you don't mind, please read. This is text number two from the book of Tanya. Take it away, please. This ultimate perfection of the age of Mashiach and the resurrection, namely the revelation of the infinite radiance of God in his physical world, depends on our actions and our work for the duration of the exile. For the reward of a mitzvah is the result of the mitzvah itself. This is because with the performance of a mitzvah, one elicits God's infinite radiance so that it descends into and is integrated within the physical matter of this world. Thank you. I want to I just give a little bit of commentary on this. So there's two paragraphs here. There are two paragraphs here, and both are really important. So paragraph number one talks about how we are the ones that bring about the age of Mashiach, the Messianic era, and the resurrection of the dead. Right? That's, that's point number one. Right? This ultimate perfection, this ultimate time, is dependent on our actions and our work right now. So we have to do the digging. Now, we haven't defined it yet. I understand that. We haven't defined what it means to do spiritual digging. We'll get there. That's a major piece of tonight's class. But it's dependent on you and I, on our efforts. And the key here is the next line, the first line of the second paragraph, which is the reward of a mitzvah is a result of the mitzvah itself. In other words, this reward that we're getting, so to speak, this reward, this perfected world is not something extrinsic, but it's actually the result of the mitzvah itself. In other words, digging itself reveals the treasure that is there. And it's not so much as it might seem from this second sentence in the second paragraph that it's about superimposing some sort of divine radiance into the world. It's rather, as we explained in the last session, but we're going to continue it today, it's really revealing the true nature of our reality, which is divine. So to really understand this, let's actually quickly review another a very important element that we explored last time that we haven't yet recapped today. And that is as follows. This world is called, in Kabbalah, in Jewish mystical teaching, it's called the lowest of all the worlds. There are four primary worlds, and this is the lowest. And we asked two weeks ago, in lesson two, we asked, why is it lowest? What does it mean that it's the lowest? What does it mean? That if you're looking from outer space, this is the lowest world? Is it spatial? And we said, no, it's not spatial. It's not up and down. 
Um, then we said, well, maybe it's that we're the lowest, we're the furthest from God. So God is closer to the higher realms than he is to our world. No. It says throughout Scripture that God is found everywhere, everywhere equally. God is, is everywhere equally. So then why is this world called the lowest? So if you recall, a few weeks ago we explained that it's called lowest vis-a-vis perception. Not reality, but perception. You remember this distinction between perception and reality? The reality is that God is here. But the perception is that God is not here. You with me on this? So it's the lowest world with regards to the degree to which you and I inherently or automatically perceive God. So very simply, if we were to be within one of the upper realms, the higher realms of existence, we would openly perceive God. It's obvious and it's clear and it's a no-brainer. But in our world, you walk outside, you look around, you don't see God. Doesn't mean you can't meditate and, and discover God. You can, and that's doing some digging. But the point is, naturally, we don't necessarily see God. We see a mountain, not the treasure. Right? We see the mountain and not the treasure. And it, it, we have to know and figure out, and then that's our job to demonstrate that, no, the mountain itself is the treasure. But at first glance, it doesn't appear like a treasure. It appears like a mountain. Hence, we call this the lowest world, lowest within the realm of revelation or appearance or clarity of truth. It is the most opaque to the true divine reality that God is here as opposed to the other worlds which are less opaque and more transparent. So, everything you and I see including our own selves, is nothing other than an emanation of God and God's life force. It's like the matrix, right? When you look and you really see the matrix, you see what it is. It's all code. It's all divine code. This is all, all of this is God. But we don't see it. And the reason why we don't see it is because God intentionally hides that, this truth from us so that we can dig and discover the truth, right? So the true reality of this world is God and God's energy, God's light and energy and life force. But God hides this from our eyesight so that we should dig, metaphorically, and discover the truth. Hence, this is the lowest realm. Lowest in the context of what's automatically seen. But there is treasure right here. God is right here. And our job is to reveal and demonstrate this truth. That's why we're here. We explained last, in the last session, that's the purpose of life, the purpose of our creation, the purpose of all being, is to make a home for God on this earth. More precisely, it's not to superimpose something on a foreign reality. It's rather to dig and reveal the true nature of this world that it is actually all God. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes. Okay. Perfect. Which leads to the, mul to the I was going to say multi-million, but the, at least the million dollar question. Maybe it's even a multi-million dollar question. They used to have, what was that, the $64,000 question? $64,000. Bupkis, right? It's got to be a million dollar question nowadays, right? So what's, uh, what's the 
mean, $64,000, it's not even going to get you a Bitcoin. Okay, maybe it's going to get you one. Um, but what's the million-dollar question? The million-dollar question is, okay, so we know what this world is, right? We know that it's really God, but hiding. And our job is to uncover the truth and thus make a home for God in this world. And it's not superimposed treasure. It's literally discovering the treasure, the divine treasure that is this world. This world is not a hunk of, uh, it's not a mountain. It's not just soil. It's, it's divine treasure right here. And our job is to uncover that. But the question is, how? How do we do that? What's the shovel? What are we doing? Like, what's, what's the, is it hocus pocus? Is it magic? Is it a wand? Is it a, is it a scepter? What do we, how, how do we reveal this, this truth? So there's a very simple answer. It's a one word answer. Oh, by the way, it's simple, but it's not easy. But it's a simple answer. And that one word answer that I'm referring to is mitzvot or mitzvah, plural or singular, or whatever you want to call it. It's doing a mitzvah. The purpose and function of a mitzvah is to reveal, it's to dig and reveal the truth of the world around us so that we and everyone sees that it's not a disconnected mound of dirt, not a random mountain, you know, taking up space somewhere, but rather that this world is a sparkling divine treasure. That's what happens. And that's what we reveal each and every time we do a mitzvah. So, getting back to the analogy, I'm going to go back to it throughout tonight's class. Right? The king and the mountain and the treasure. Imagine if the treasure was in the mountain. And imagine if the king said, dig up the mountain, find the treasure, and the people dug, and throughout the mountain there was treasure. And everywhere they dug, they found treasure. Right? That is, again, it's not a perfect analogy, but that is analogous. That's somewhat similar to what we're talking about here. This world is a divine, a spiritual garden. It's a treasure. It's a godly treasure. I don't see it. You don't see it. It's not obvious. That's why we need to dig. What's, what is the digging? What's the spiritual digging? Doing a mitzvah. And I'm going to explain this. That's why we have a whole class tonight to explain this. But the nature of a mitzvah is to reveal the truth of this world, that it's not a foreign entity, but rather it's a divine entity. So to understand this, let's do a thought experiment together. And I want you to close your eyes for a moment and picture an image in your... Now I'm going to tell you what to picture. Don't worry. I'm not giving, it's not an open-ended meditation here. So I want you to close your eyes for a moment as I close mine. And I want you to picture in your mind a beautiful Steinway grand piano. It's beautiful. It's glossy piano black. How convenient of, a, of, a, of the name of a color, piano black. It's glossy. It's shiny. It's, the keys are perfectly tuned and it's ready to make and produce the most gorgeous music. Okay, you can open your eyes if they're, if they're still closed. So imagine that piano. And imagine that piano exists in three different universes. And I'm going to describe the universes to you. Work with me on this thought experiment. Okay, universe number one is our universe. Right, there's people, there's music. Okay, universe number two, there are people but listen to this. There's no concept 
of music. No one has ever heard music or heard of music. No one has any clue what music is or what music does or what music is supposed to be. So again, universe one is our universe with people and music. Universe number two, no music, only people. Universe number three, only woodpeckers. <laughs> I know you weren't expecting that, but work with me. Only woodpeckers. Right? The bird that pecks the wood? Yeah, okay. Remember Woody Woodpecker? Remember from, uh, okay, from the cartoons? Okay, so, so those are the three worlds. And imagine you take the same piano and you drop it in all three of those worlds. Let's go through it one at a time. So you take the piano, this gorgeous, beautiful, full, you know, this grand piano, Steinway. Gorgeous, tuned, amazing piano, and you drop it in to world number one, with people and music and musicians, and you put it down in the middle of wherever, what's gonna happen? Unmute yourself, somebody give me a scenario, what's gonna happen? Help me out here. I have my granddaughter come and play. There you go, there you go. At some point, someone's gonna come over and start playing music, good, fine, now imagine now imagine, I'm going to ask about this one also. Imagine you take the piano and you drop it into world number two, into universe number two, which has people but no music. What's going to happen? Help me out here. What's going to happen? Now you have a piano sitting there, but there's no music. So what happens? They're going to come and put this, they're going to, they're going to, use, their, they're going to use the piano to put their cigarettes out on. Yeah, yeah. Or, or actually, I mean, but maybe they would put it, use it for um, like family photos right? Or if they're hosting a dinner party, maybe glasses of wine on a little coaster thing, right? Like many people use their pianos for if they don't, right? So, right, so they might put, they might use it as like a beautiful piece of furniture, like, oh, it's gorgeous, it's beautiful, so we'll have it in the house, but we'll use it for other purposes. Okay, and what about the third world with the woodpecker? No people, only woodpeckers. What's going to happen in that world? Piano will be pecked to pieces. It's going to be pecked. The piano will be pecked to pieces. That's very good alliteration right there. So, yeah, the piano is going to get, and it's going to get all splintered and broken. So, let me ask you the question, what I'm leading up to. Why the difference between these worlds? Why in one will music be played? And why in the other will it be used as a piece of furniture for photos and why in the other world is it going to be is it going to be splintered and broken and um and and pecked to pieces why is that the case is it a different piano in all three worlds no so what's the difference because we have to discover the the essence for the things from the things good perfect because it comes down to one simple factor do you know what it is? Do you actually know what it is? If you know what it is, and you know how to use it, oh, that's world number one. If you don't know what it is, you're going to use it for a cup holder, you're going to use it for uh, a photo holder, you're going to use it for wood to pack. It all, it's the same piano, nothing changed in the piano. In other words, the objective reality is the same. The only difference is in the perception. In one world, they know what it is. 
In another world, they don't know what it is. In another world, they're woodpeckers. So what are you going to do for that one, right? They're just woodpeckers. There's no awareness at all about what it is. Or, or more precisely, they see that. It's like, oh, some fresh wood. It's nice, glossy, fresh wood to start pecking on. That, that's, that's the concept that it's all based on perception and awareness and understanding. But getting back to what Mariana said, which is so beautiful, when you know the true essence and nature, when you're aware of what it is, the more you're aware of that, the more, you'll, the more likely and the more you will use it for its intended purpose. If you know what it is and you really get it, the more likely you are to use it for what it was made for. And please, please, Steinway made that piano not to be pecked and not to hold family photos. It, they made it to create beautiful music and to share beautiful music. So the more the user, you and I, really hone in on what it is and why it is, the more aware perception, the more aware we are, the more likely we'll be actually use it for the purpose that it was made for. And the more you use it, you and I use it for the purpose it was made for, the more you reveal to everyone else what this object is really about. You with me on that? In other words, the more the pianist, the one who's playing the piano, plays that piano, the more it's clear to everyone else, even if someone else doesn't know how to play a piano, the more it's clear to them that, yeah, this is definitely not for photos. Listen to this music. Listen to this music. It's gorgeous, beautiful. This is, this is for music. This is not for photos. This is not for, um, for woodpeckers. And that's exactly what happens every time we do a mitzvah. A mitzvah means both elements. Number one, we recognize that this is a piano. And we're going to play the piano in the way that it was intended to be played. And number two, it reveals to everyone else that this indeed is a piano. That's what happens when we do a mitzvah. So now a mitzvah is digging and it's playing the piano. So what exactly are we talking about? So let's now define what a mitzvah is. We could have started the class this way. I could have asked you, I think the, the lesson in the textbook, it, it starts off with this question. You know, what does a mitzvah mean to you? I'll tell you the most, in my opinion, what I've heard the most often, what most people think a mitzvah is, is a good deed or a divine commandment. And while both of these are true on some level, they don't really capture the essence of what a mitzvah really is. It's not just a good deed, although it is, and it's not just a divine commandment, which it also is. It's not just that. A mitzvah, at its core, is a declaration of truth. A mitzvah is a statement of truth. A mitzvah cries out and declares, this object has a higher purpose. This object is not just wood for woodpeckers. This is a piano, right? This is not just wool. This is a talit, a prayer shawl used for divine worship. This is not just parchment. This is a Torah scroll conveying God's will and wisdom. This is not just an overpriced lemon. This is an etrog used 
to, although it is also an overpriced line. No, but, it's, but it is at the core a etrog used to celebrate the holiday of Sukkot every time we do a mitzvah. It is a good deed and it is a divine commandment, but more than that, at its core is a declaration of, 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 of truth, a statement of the facts. This thing, this item, this object that I'm using for the mitzvah is not just a piece of wood or a piece of parchment or a piece of leather or a piece of wool or a wax candle. It's not what it is. It is a beautiful spiritual instrument that brings light into the world. The difference between doing the mitzvah and not doing the mitzvah is the difference between the woodpecker pecking at the piano or using it to play beautiful music. Are you with me on that? Yes? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, every mitzvah we do is like sitting down at that piano and playing a beautiful melody. It's us utilizing a piece of this physical material world for its deepest purpose. And by doing so, we expose the truth of this world, that it's not just a mountain, but it's a treasure. It's not just a piece of wood, it's a piano. Otherwise, we're just, if we just use physical matter on a materialistic level, then it's like the woodpeckers going to town on the Steinway. It's not what it was intended for, and it's not what it was made for. So, what is a mitzvah? And I'm going to pause for questions in, in the next 30 to 60 seconds. I just want to summarize what we've done until now. So what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is digging the mountain and exposing the treasure. A mitzvah is a person saying, I know why this exists. It's not just wool and it's not just leather and it's not just parchment. It's not just wax. It's not just whatever it is. This is a holy spiritual instrument to play a beautiful divine, godly melody. I'm playing a concert, a spiritual concert from this piece of physical matter. It's not just physical, it is spiritual. It's not just a mountain, it's a treasure. And that is how we dig the mountain and reveal to all what the world really is. Because as I said before, there's two elements. When the person sits down in world one and plays the piano, right, the two things happen. Number one, it's being used for its intended purpose. And number two, in case anyone wasn't sure, this now broadcasts to all around that, yeah, this is a piano. It's not just a piece of wood. It is a piano. When we do a mitzvah, two things happen. Number one, we utilize the thing for a higher purpose, for its intended purpose. And number two, we declare to everybody around the world is not just a mountain. The world is a treasure. All right, let me stop for a moment and let's take questions or comments. Yes, Susan. What about a mitzvah that does not include a physical, tangible object? Every myth, a great question, but every mitzvah is tethered to something physical. Think about it. Every, even the mitzvah to love God or to love your fellow, it's a heart, it's tethered to the physical heart, it's, a part, it's, a physical, it's tied to the physical um, part of the body. Studying Torah, it's tied to the physical brain. Every single mitzvah is a declaration. It, so when it comes to, to love and to understanding, 
right? It's why do we have a heart? Why do we have a, a brain? What's the higher purpose, right? Is it just to feel and think on a mundane level? No, higher thought, higher feeling. Divine thought, divine feeling. Every mitzvah. Now, we're not talking about the do not do's, right? When the Torah says do not steal, well, I mean, it's not, that's not, it's, it's tied, <laughs> It's kind of, well, I mean, it's tied to a physical thing, but it's tied to not doing a physical thing. But either way, just, just don't do it. But what we're talking about here, doing a mitzvah means you're taking a, a, a positive mitzvah. In other words, like a, a, one of the do's, the 248 do's, like do this, do that. So you take something from the world and you use it for a higher purpose. It's not just higher, it's, it's intended purpose. You're taking the piano and playing the music as opposed to See, that's the paradigm shift. The paradigm shift is that, and that, that's why I started with the story of the mountain. Because a perception could be, look, the world is the world. And then we're supposed to somehow introduce this other foreign asset, this type of um, you know, spirituality into a, into a physical space. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is revealing the truth of what this world is. Again, the distinction between the two is the distinction between the two is, do I look at the world as, you know, broken and flawed and materialistic and mundane and, you know, just messed up and, the, and our job is to get out of here, to find ourselves to a better place? Or do we look at this world as a beautiful place, as God's garden, as a place of, filled with music, spiritual music and, and, and spiritual beauty and divine light and divine energy and godliness? And this class, the whole, I can't say the whole point, but the ma a major point of this class is the paradigm shift. This is not the bait and switch of the king. This is not a mountain and the treasure is somewhere else. This is the treasure. The treasure is here. The light is here. And our job is to expose the truth by utilizing the mountain for the treasure, by utilizing the piano to play music. So when we do that, we do two things. Number one, we, we align that thing with its higher purpose, with its core purpose. And number two, we reveal to everyone else that, yeah, this has a higher purpose. This has a deeper purpose. But every, every mitzvah is tied. I know, I know you, you had a specific question, but every mitzvah, if you go through the list, every mitzvah is tied to some sort of physical being or some a physical entity, object, action, it's, or a physical part of the body. It's, it's, everything is attached to something Something of, the, of the, the physical fabric of the universe. Thank you. Sure. Which, by the way, answers the question. We could have phrased it as a question. Why are mitzvot so mundane? Like a mitzvah should be. You should go to a mountaintop, like other, other religions or, or philosophies. Go to a mountaintop and meditate. And that's like the tachlis. That's like the, the ultimate. The epitome of spirituality. And Judaism says, no. The epitome of spirituality is you take a... Uh, uh, a palm branch, a citron fruit, a myrtle, and a willow. Hold them together and do the old sukkah shake. That's, that's holiness. Why, why do I need to shake these, these, these branches? What's up with that? It's about aligning the world and revealing the truth that the, the natural universe is a divine treasure. And that's what a mitzvah does. It reveals it. Sorry, it, it, it demonstrates it and it reveals it. So what about like the mitzvah of visiting the sick or taking someone to the grocery store? Yeah, great question, great question. So that would also be tied 
to physical actions. So for example, you take someone to the grocery store, so you, 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 you I mean, let's just use the example of a car, right? So then you go with them, you take them in your car, you go shopping, and you help them shop. So that reveals the deeper truth of what a car is all about. I'm just focusing on the car for a second. What's the purpose of a car? Is it to show off? Is it to just randomly get from point A to point B? That's like a woodpecker, right? That's like, oh, there's wood. Let me go at it. The real, no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Like, the real purpose of a car is for a mitzvah. The real purpose of a house is for a mitzvah. And it's our job. This is what Judaism is. This is, re, honestly, this is Judaism 101. I don't mean that in a simplistic way. I mean in, a, in an essential way. This is like the very essence and foundation of what Judaism is. Judaism is a, a fierce belief that at the core, this world is holy, is godly, is beautiful, is for a higher purpose, and we're going to utilize everything around us for a higher purpose and to demonstrate that indeed there is a deeper truth here. And every time we do a mitzvah, it makes that declaration. We might not even be aware of it. <laughs> and it sounds kind of crazy. How can you make a declaration and not be aware of it? Okay, because it's, it's still all about perception. right? We can be blind, so to speak, to our own accomplishments, and that's just a part of the, the opacity, the darkness that we live in, why it's called, indeed, the lowest world. Even when we're creating a transformation, we don't always see it right away. Even when we've dug up treasure, and we're holding the treasure, and we're actually saying, hey, look, I found treasure, we might not even get what that means. We're doing a mitzvah, we're holding on to the treasure, we're like, oh, cool, treasure. All right, back to the television, right? It's like, whoa, hold on, you're holding a treasure. Right? Um, now, if the television has Torah classes on it, then we should be okay. And that's the purpose of a television, as we've been discussing. The, 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 per, the, the mitzvah, the physical mitzvah, it's not just a good deed, it's not just a divine commandment, it, it is also, but at the core, it's a statement. It's a, it's a, it's a statement of truth. It's a declaration of reality. It's this thing exists for a higher purpose, and let me show you how. And check this out. Look what we can do with this. This is now a vehicle for a higher purpose. And not only is it a vehicle for a higher purpose, this is why it was created in the first place. This is its very why and wherefore. Its core essence is for this. It was designed for this. When a person plays the piano, it's not like, oh, look what I got it to do. Look how I hacked this thing to play music. You didn't hack it. That's literally what it's here for. Right? You didn't hack wool to make a talit. You didn't hack leather to make tefillin. Right? That's literally, from a Jewish perspective, why it exists. The Talmud says, you know why gold exists? For the Holy Temple. That's why it exists. It's only that God also shared it with the world. But, but in essence, its core is for a higher purpose. And that's true with everything. The money, the food, the car, the house... The tchotchkes, right? Every, well, maybe not the tchotchkes, but everything, okay, maybe also. Everything that exists, if you don't know what tchotchkes are, you got to get some tchotchkes. Everything exists, everything at its core bespeaks and exists for a higher purpose. Okay, any other questions or comments before we go even deeper in this concept? Uranium. I don't know the reference. 
well, it's used to make the atomic bomb, but what do we use uranium for? This I don't know. Well, well, hold on. I mean, you know, energy is a good... No, I really don't. No, 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 no. So what? No. So what I'm saying? Yeah, but no, I'm with you. But you know, it's like it reminds me of the story where the and I'm a little bit out of my field. This now we're getting into like some you know chemistry and science here, so physics and whatnot. So let me disclaimer out of my field. Nonetheless, listen. Why not? It's uh, we're all friends here. It's a safe space, so I don't mind going ahead. Here's the deal. The Rebbe once was walking down this, I heard the story that the Rebbe was walking in, in, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn in the 1950s and a young girl came, to, walked over to the Rebbe and she said, I'm very scared about, you know, the, the bomb and, you know, the atomic bomb and all that, and it's very frightening. The Rebbe turned to her and said, I, I, I hear you, do you have a knife in the kitchen in your home? And she said, oh, and she asked the Rebbe, is, is this good or not good? I'm very afraid. So the Rebbe said, do you have a knife at home in the kitchen? She said, yeah. So the Rebbe said, is the knife good or not good? So she said, she thought for a moment, and she said, well, I guess it could be used for good, it could be used for not good. The Rebbe said the same thing is true with everything in this world. Everything in this world could be used for positive, constructive purposes or for destructive purposes. So again, um, with, with full disclaimer that I, I, I don't exactly know the science, but you know, if you can create incredible amounts of energy from something and it could be harnessed for good, well, then that speaks to a higher purpose. But then the question would be, what are you using the energy for? So it's good to have lights on, but what are the lights on for? Is it to teach a Torah class? Boom, that's a good thing. Is it to help, you know, to, to help us and our families and our loved ones and our friends and those that need it? Yes, done, it's for a higher purpose. So the point is really that this, again, just to kind of um, recap what we've said until now in, in about 30 seconds or less, this world is the treasure. The treasure is not somewhere else. This, world, this mountain is the treasure. Our job is to excavate, to reveal this truth. And that comes through, first and foremost, awareness of that truth, awareness of that fact. The more we're aware that this is a treasure, the more we can utilize it for its intended purpose. The more we know that it's a piano, the more we're likely to play the piano. And the more we play the piano, the more others can begin seeing, oh, it's not just a piece of wood. It's not just a piece of furniture that looks nice. It's actually a piano. The more mitzvah we do, the more, the more that impression begins to saturate the entire world and more people realize, ah, oh, there is a deeper truth here. There is a higher purpose. There is an essence, a core. This world is not a jungle. It's not just a mountain, an ugly mountain. It is a beautiful treasure. Okay, so that's what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is a declaration of truth, and it's not some, uh, you know, this is, this thing, item that I'm using is not just some mundane earth item, it is divine treasure. Okay, now a mitzvah does this in two ways. There is the general way and the specific way. And let me explain that we're going to do a text in a moment, but I just want to explain very quickly what I mean. There is a commonality to all mitzvot. Every mitzvah is the same insofar as it as every mitzvah is a declaration of this core truth that this thing, or whatever it is, is not just a mundane item. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's tied with a divine purpose and a divine plan. So that's true. That's common to all mitzvot. But every mitzvah does that declaration in a little bit of a different way. So like one mitzvah is going to say, oh, the piece of wool that's made into a talit is about reminding us of the mitzvot then kind of wrapping us in a mitzvah. And the tefillin made from leather and parchment 
the phylacteries, is going to remind us to, to align our mind and heart to be on the same page, so that our ideals and our passions are aligned and not fragmented. And um, a candle that's being used to light Shabbat candles is a declaration of peace and love in our homes and peace and love in the world. So every mitzvah makes a little bit of a different, makes a, every mitzvah says something a little bit different. But in general, so that's on the specific level, but in general, every mitzvah makes the same declaration that this does not exist only as a piece of wood to be pecked at by a woodpecker, but it is, it holds a deeper meaning. So that, that core idea, that core shift, this is not mundane, it's spiritual, is across the board for every mitzvah. But every mitzvah makes a little bit of a different impression and impact along the way when you get into it specifics. So let me, let's go through this inside. I have a text for this. So let's um, do this together. I think it's a bit of a longer text. So I might want to read it just because I feel like that would be a little bit easier. Okay, this is text four. It's page, page 104. Page 104, and I am going to read. Yeah, it's a little bit long, so I'm going to read this. Okay, here we go. There are two. Yeah, it's 104. There are two aspects to every mitzvah. Give me a second here. There are two aspects to every mitzvah. One aspect is the fact that with every mitzvah that we do, we fulfill God's will. Let, let me translate that into our terminology. Every mitzvah that we do, no matter what, it's the same declaration, this is divine. In this regard, this is from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. In this regard, the Rebbe says, there is no difference between one mitzvah and the next. An individual fulfills a mitzvah not because of its unique qualities and its unique effects, but simply to carry out God's will. This aspect of the mitzvah is aptly demonstrated in the observation of Rabbi Schneir Zaman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, that if we were commanded to chop wood, we would do it in obedience to the divine will with the same enthusiasm as we fulfill the mitzvah of tefillin. In other words, there's no difference between wrapping tefillin and chopping wood if that's what God wants. In other words, if that's the purpose of why it's created, to wrap tefillin and to chop that wood, if that's why it's there, then doing it would be the same. Uh, to give you another example, using our terminology, or the second example that I gave of the, um, of the piano. You know, whether it's a piano, or whether it's a Steinway piano, or let me, let me check on my uh, recall, or Stradivarius, did I get that right? Stradivarius violin, yeah? Whether it's a piano or violin, it would be the same story, right? A violin, a wooden violin on Planet Woodpecker would get pecked to death. On uh, Planet Human Being Without Music, it would get, I don't know, maybe decored up. It would be like hanging on a wall somewhere. And in Planet Music, it's going to be played. I don't know why I went, I, I don't know if you saw my hands. I went into like guitar mode, which is weird because we're talking about violin. But anyway, violin mode, right? So it would be the same. Now, when you play the music, a piano sounds different than a violin. And rightly so. One evokes this type of music, one that type of music. It evokes different emotions, different sensations, whatever it is. But at the core, the fact that this is not just a piece of wood, this is a, 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 an instrument for something greater and higher and more beautiful, there's a commonality, whether it's a 
a violin or whether it's a piano. It doesn't make a difference. That's what he's saying here. On one level, every mitzvah is the same. Right. Whether it's putting on tefillin or giving tzedakah or uh, Shabbos candles or that, whatever, mezuzah on your door, every mitzvah on one level is the same. It's a declaration. This has a deeper purpose. This physical item is a treasure. And let me show you how. That's on one level. But the second aspect of a mitzvah is that each mitzvah brings a spiritual refinement to the individual performing the mitzvah. Similarly, the mitzvah brings a spiritual refinement to the objects with which it is performed and ultimately refines the world. In other words, every mitzvah does something else to us and does something else for the world, like the difference between the piano and the violin. They both, they're both at the core of the same thing, a piece of wood that does something much greater than just a piece of wood. But each one does something a little bit different. Violin touches you in this way and a piano touches you in that way. Different types of music, different, etc. It's different. So it's the same and it's different. So every mitzvah shares a common thread, a common denominator. It's all about a deeper truth. And yet every mitzvah has a specific way of going about that. The difference between these two elements, the Rebbe says, is that with the first aspect, the specifics of the mitzvah are irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you're doing, but that you're doing a mitzvah. All mitzvot are equal, for they are all equally God's will. God wants me to, to, do, to, to wrap tefillin. God wants me to put up mezuzah. God wants me to light Shabbat candles. God wants me to eat kosher, etc. It doesn't matter what the mitzvah is. They're all the same. They all bespeak a deeper truth. It's all declaration of truth. This is greater and higher and deeper than what it seems. By contrast, the second element highlights the significance of each mitzvah's specific details. For each mitzvah brings a dissimilar branch of spiritual enhancement to the soul and refines the world in a different way. So every mitzvah touches the individual as well as the world, as well as itself on some level, right, in a bit of a different way. So that is, yeah, that's the end of the quote. So this is the, um, the, the dual nature of a mitzvah. Now I want to share with you another text which I love, and I'm going to read it to you as well. So this is text number six, and text number six begins on page 107, so follow with me. This is from the Midrash, right? You can see the Midrash Tanchuma. You can look at it in your books or on the screen. Take a look at this. The Midrash is trying to explain why there are so many mitzvot, 630 mitzvot, 248 dues. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. So it says like this, God did not leave anything in this world, in the world, without providing the people of Israel with a means of performing a mitzvah with it. A person proceeding to plow, must he do not plow with an ox and donkey together. Similarly, if one wishes to sow, to plant, it says do not sow kilayim, hybrid plantings in your vineyard. What about reaping? You know, cutting the, uh, the produce, when you reap your harvest in your field, leave any forgotten sheaves for the poor. What about threshing? Do not muzzle an ox while, it's while it is threshing. Kneading dough from the first of your kneading bowl, separate some challah as a gift to the priest. What about removing eggs from a nest? Send away the mother bird first. Slaughtering a wild animal fowl, cover its blood with soil. Planting a tree, observe its arla by abstaining from its fruit for the first three years. Burying, bury a deceased relative, do not mourn excessively by slashing yourself in grief. No cutting. Take a haircut, do not shave the corners of your head. Build a house, install a safety fence around its roof, and inscribe these words, the mezuzah on the doorposts of your home and your city gates. Wear a garment that is four corners, they shall make for themselves tzitzit. So the, the Medrash is saying that at every turn in life, whatever you want to do, there's a mitzvah. And now the question is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to form it as a question. We'll do a little question and answer here. It's kind of rhetorical. The question is, well, why so many mitzvot? Like, what's up with that? We need a mitzvah. Everything we're doing, we're building a house, there's a Jewish building code. And we're planting our field, there's a Jewish 
you know, agricultural code. Like, what is this? Let me just do those things and just live life. And then I'll go to synagogue and do a mitzvah. I need to do a mitzvah every part of my life. And the answer is exactly. Because the whole purpose of the mitzvah is to demonstrate that the whole world is a treasure. Are you with me in that answer? Were you anticipating that? I hope you were anticipating the answer. The whole purpose of a mitzvah is to demonstrate and declare and, and reveal that the whole world is indeed divine. How do you do that? By doing something holy with everything that you touch. When you're planting, it's a mitzvah. When you're building, there's a mitzvah. When you're relaxing, there's a mitzvah over there. When you're eating, there's a mitzvah. When you're getting dressed, a mitzvah. Right? Everything, when you're farming, when you're planting, when you're, everything you do, there's a mitzvah. Why? Why so many mitzvot? Give me one. We'll be done. No. Every mitzvah declares that this is not a piece of wood, it's a piano. It's not a piece of wood, it's a violin. It's not a piece of earth, it's a, it's a, it's a mitzvah opportunity. It's not an animal, it's a mitzvah. That's every single mitzvah declares this. And by doing this, Again and again and again, what we do is align every inch, every piece of this world with its divine source. With, it's not even source. I, I shouldn't be pointing up. With its divine core, with its essence of, of what it is. Remember, the big idea that we explained last time was this world is godly. We just don't see it. Today we're talking about how to reveal that. We reveal that when we use that thing, as many things as possible, for its deeper intended purpose. We align it with its deepest truth. And, that, and, and we reveal that truth to the world at large. Now, what about, what about um, all of the things that are not used for a mitzvah? You know, there's so many things that aren't, um, you know, a, you, use, um, you make a, a Torah scroll from some parchment, from, an, from animal skins. Okay, but that's not all of the animals. So how do you... How, do, how are we transforming, or not transforming, how are we revealing the, the, the truth of the whole world when we just do one mitzvah with one item? Even if many people are doing a mitzvah, there's still a lot of the world that's being untouched, so to speak. So here we get into something. Um, it's not really the butterfly effect, but it's something like that. The idea that the whole world is interconnected. So if you use a pencil, or a pen for that matter, We'll use the example of a pencil because uh, I want to show you a video soon. But if we use a pencil to write some ideas of Torah, so what we're doing is we're revealing that this pencil is not just a piece of wood with some, I don't know, graphite in it or whatever it is, right? It's not just a pencil. It's, an, it's a tool for Torah. It's a tool for higher wisdom. And how did the pencil get here? Ho, ho, ho. There's a whole network of how the pencil got here. And every element along the way Every item, every, all the fuel and the, everything that was part of it all gets transformed and elevated as part of this mitzvah experience. I want to show you a video that I think you might enjoy. Let me just for, first pull it up by me and make sure that I have it. Okay, give me a second. Pencil video. Let me open it up and... Cool, I think we're ready to go over here. Make a full screen. Okay, I'm gonna share my screen with you to watch a few minute video called I Pencil. 
And it's going to speak to the interconnectedness of things. And again, the reason why we're talking, just so you know where we are in this, in this map of tonight's class, the reason we're talking about interconnectedness is to illustrate how even when you do one mitzvah with one thing, you're really touching so many other things in this world. Okay, so without further ado, let's do, let's share this, um, this video. Muster an army of workers, machines, factories, ships, trains, and endless natural supplies. What do you get? A pencil. In 1958, Leonard Reed penned a classic to document the mind-boggling diversity of materials and skilled labors required for a single manufactured object. He detailed the production of a pencil, speaking in the pencil's voice. My family tree begins with a cedar of straight grain. Contemplate all the saws and trucks and rope and the countless other gear used in harvesting and carting the cedar logs to the railroad site. Think of all the persons and the numberless skills that went into the fabrication of these logging tools. The mining of ore, the making of steel and its refinement into saws, axes, motors, the growing of hemp and bringing it through all the stages of heavy and strong rope. Reed describes railroad networks and communication systems that bring the logs to mills and the millwork that produces thin slats. He asks, how many skills went into supplying the heat, the light and power, the belts, motors, and all the other things a mill requires? Reed includes the workers who constructed the hydro plant that supplies the mill's power, trains that transport the slats, a factory that cost millions to erect and equip with brilliant machines that slip the slats and insert the lead, and the lead itself, produced by mixing graphite mined in Sri Lanka with clay from Mississippi and treating it with Mexican wax. The pencils receive six coats of lacquer and are labeled with carbon black mixed with resins. An eraser holder made of zinc and copper is attached, and black nickel rings are added. Finally, the pencil's eraser is a rubber-like product made with Indonesian rapeseed oil, Italian pumice, sulfur chloride, vulcanizing and accelerating agents, and cadmium sulfide. One pencil, millions of dollars, dozens of countries, thousands of miles. But we can add something radical that Reed never considered. What if this pencil belongs to David, who uses it for Torah classes? It helps him observe the mitzvah of Torah study. That changes everything. Divinity, generated by his mitzvah, illuminates his soul and body and elevates the pencil as well. That powerful, godly light travels back along the pencil's production route, elevating the factory, railroads, minerals, investments, skills, lives, and all that Reed so vividly described. Think about that the next time you offer charity. Light a Shabbat candle or wind tefillin around your arm. With each mitzvah act, so much of this world is connected with divinity. Make sense? Make sense? Yeah. I, 
I, I love that video. Um, I'm always hesitant to do videos on Zoom because I know sometimes it could end up choppy. I think I hope I hope that 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 uh, what was able to be broadcast smoothly on your end. Um, it was pretty smooth on my end. I'll tell you this. It's amazing. Who would have thought of how much effort, energy, manpower, human power goes into making one pencil? <laughs> all of the lines, that, all of the different countries. And this is back in the 50s. You know, we, who, who knows what production looks like today with, with all of the other touch points, right? Can you imagine how any item that we use, how many other elements were involved in that? And again, what is a mitzvah? At a core, a mitzvah is a declaration that this is not a mountain, it's a treasure. This is not a piece of wood, it's a piano or a violin, right? That this is not just a mundane pencil, it's an instrument to record and maybe even transmit Torah. That is what is at the core of doing a mitzvah. And that's really, as we've said in the, pre in the previous class, that's really at the core of why the world exists. Why did God create a lower world in order for us to reveal that it's not lower at all? God created a world in which he's hidden for us to show how he's actually right here. And that's what we do every time we do a mitzvah. And so a mitzvah is the key to understanding the process of how we achieve the ultimate purpose, the purpose of life itself, the purpose of being, the purpose of our individual being. That is achieved every time we do a mitzvah. Every time we miss the opportunity to do a mitzvah and we take the world at face value and we only engage in the mountain as a simple mountain or as a piece of wood, as a woodpecker wood, right? Just using it and consuming it, but not connecting with anything higher. Then it's a, it's a missed opportunity to demonstrate the deepest truth of this reality. So that's why mitzvot are so important and why there are so many opportunities. As we, said, as we read in this last text, text number six, why there are so many opportunities to do a mitzvah at, at every turn. So all of this speaks to the power of the mitzvah. When you and I do a mitzvah, we are playing the Steinway or the Stradivarius as intended and demonstrating that it's not just a piece of wood, it's a sublime instrument that plays the most exquisite spiritual music. Now this brings us to our final big idea. And this is the last piece I want to cover over the last 10 minutes or so. Right, yeah, for sure, Mark, jump in. I remember studying with you that mitzvahs are how we can communicate and connect with Hashem. Yeah. So how does that, how does that Mark, as always, I, I, you have a knack for this. We are exactly going to jump into that topic right now. It's a perfect segue. That's exactly where we are. In other words, the last, this last big idea that I, want, that I want to share over the last 10 minutes is going to speak to the idea of a mitzvah as a connection and what that means in the context of everything that we said. So hold that thought, hold that question, because we're about to address it. I was going to use a little bit of different terminology, but we're going to address it, and we're going to address it right now. You see, knowing everything that we've talked about up until now, knowing that what, what the purpose of existence is, and knowing what our role in that purpose is, right? So knowing that the purpose of existence is 
for us to re- is to be, is for the world to be revealed as a treasure, and knowing that the role that we play in that we are the ones that can utilize the world in its intended fashion, and thus reveal the truth of what it is that it's not a mountain, it's a treasure, right? So knowing what the purpose is and knowing the role that we play in in creating that purpose or or, or fulfilling that purpose, that awareness itself, that knowledge, knowledge is power. That itself radically transforms us in a number of ways. Again, I'm going to try to say that one more time, but maybe a little bit clearer. Knowing what we've talked about up until now, knowing why the world is here, what its purpose is and why we're here and what our purpose is, that radically transforms us. And it creates a shift I want to speak about in three areas. And all ultimately are about connection, as Mark mentioned. Number one, let's talk about passion in, in what we're doing in, in this world, passion in doing a mitzvah. And I want to use a business example. Okay, who is more passionate about the business? The employer or the employee? Typically, who's more excited about the business? Yeah? Help me out here. Employer. Why the employer? Because the employee is doing it. Whatever. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't exactly know why they're doing it. They have a job. They're doing it. Maybe they know. Maybe they read the mission statement. Maybe they didn't read the mission statement. But it's not like so. It's, it's, it's not their thing. But the employer, right? The employer, it's, it's their baby. It's their thing. They know, they know why they're doing it. They know what they're doing. And thus, they're passionate about it on a completely different level. Which tells us that awareness equals passion. The more we're aware of why we're doing what we're doing, the more passionate we can be about, we can be about it. So what I mean is like this. If we think of a mitzvah as, well, God told me to do it, I guess I have to do it. Or I guess it's a good deed, why not? Beats doing not a good deed, right? I mean, I guess good, good deeds are better than, than, than the opposite then a mitzvah could be done in a way that's a little bit lackluster, a little bit lacking, might be lacking some, some passion. But when you and I know what we know, what we learned tonight, when you and I know that a mitzvah, it's not just a good deed or a divine commandment, a mitzvah is the way in which we bring the world in connection. We bring it in alignment with its core truth. It's the way we play the piano as intended that can, that, that can bring out the passion in our mitzvah action. So instead of just playing the piano like, oh, okay, I guess I have to follow the notes, boom, 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 I'm playing it with gusto like a, um, who's a famous pianist? Like a, I don't know. There we go, done. What, what, what Mark said, who Mark said, right? So instead of just playing it, we're really playing it. That's number one. There's a difference in the passion. And I want to share a text with you that, that speaks to this that I believe is very, uh, yeah. I want to say something. Sure. That in your classes, like Kabbalah classes or today, you, you bring to us the connection to understand or to feel the soul of the things. And I, I, when, I think when, when you connect with something that is, is bigger, and the, the furniture or, or the thing that we only see, we understand that there is something bigger and the passion 
brings like it's it's something immediately yeah like start connecting and want to to work for that and um and i think because of that is so important in in the in the in the places that work people to transmit what is what is what is the meaning of the company or what is the what is the the soul of the company exactly because, because when we understand what you say and yeah. thank you very much because i i think through kabbalah and through this we 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 connected with the passion yes exactly yes perfectly stated exactly that when we if we if we if, we, if all we know is that we're supposed to do that thing, press that button, for example. Eh, I press it, I don't press it. I press it, I'm not excited about pressing it. But when I know that when I'm pressing it, do you know what happens when you press it? This is the, the point of everything that exists. Now you're going to press it with excitement. It's exactly what study leads to and exactly what Kabbalah leads to and exactly what this course is all about. It's understanding the mechanism of what the world is, what the purpose is, Right? What Mashiach really is, because everything we're talking about tonight is Mashiach. Mashiach is when the world is finally aligned with its creator, when there's no more opacity, when there's no more concealment, when it's obvious that this is the divine treasure. So that's what Mashiach is, and knowing what we're doing leads to the passion. It's not just the employee reading the mission statement it's kind of like the partner in the business who knows it from the inside out. And when you know it, you know what you're doing, you're excited about doing it. That's number one. Number two, the second benefit is, right, when, you, when we adopt a Mashiach mindset, which again, Mashiach mindset would mean I know that the world is a beautiful place and my job is to reveal this truth. And that's Mashiach when the world is revealed, when it's as we said in the second lesson, what is Mashiach? Mashiach is when the world is filled with the knowledge of God, with the awareness of God, i.e. When, when it's clear and obvious that this is a divine garden. This is, this is a treasure. It's not just a mountain. It's a treasure. It's a piano. It's not just a piece of wood. So knowing this, we no longer do a mitzvah just for some external reward. You know, I'll do a mitzvah. You know, I don't want to make God upset. Or I'll do a mitzvah for you know, my mother, my bubby. I'll do a mitzvah for, um, you know, for some sort of spiritual reward in the afterlife. No, a mitzvah is because I am fulfilling the purpose of everything that exists, which again leads to passion, but it also leads to clarity of purpose. Why am I here? Why is this thing here? What am I doing today? You can't compare someone who wakes up every morning and knows what they're doing and why they're doing it to someone who wakes up in the morning and says, I'm not even sure why I'm here. Right? In addition to the passion, it's also the clarity. What's my job? What am I, what am I actually doing? <laughs> so I, maybe I should have put these in a different order. Maybe number one is you know what you're doing. Number two is now that you know what you're doing, ah, now you're excited about it because you realize what you're doing. The third point, though, is really, really important. That is when we know all of this, all of the above, then we have a sense of certainty and a sense of absolute conviction that Mashiach is coming. It's a reality. Let me explain. If this world is, a, is an ugly mountain, and I don't know if there's such a thing anyway, but let's just say, if this world is just a, a mountain that's you know, blocking my way, if this world is just a piece of wood, shiny black piece of wood that I don't know why it's here, 
and we're thinking maybe we're going to get a treasure somehow, some way. Maybe Mashiach will come, maybe it won't. Maybe it's going to happen, maybe it won't happen. But if we know that this is not a piece of wood, this is a piano. It's not a mountain, this is a treasure. It's a heap of treasure. If we know that, then there's no chance Mashiach is not going to come. Because a thing can only pretend for so long. The truth inevitably comes out. To give you another example, a person can, be, can dream and be in an altered state of consciousness only for a certain amount of time. At some point, they wake up. Looking at the mountain and only seeing a mountain and not God's treasure. Looking at the, at the piano and only seeing a piece of wood and not seeing the truth, that's an aberration. That's, that's, a, that's a false sense of reality. And when we know that, then we know for certain that Mashiach is coming. Because there's only so long that people can't, don't realize the truth or that we don't embrace the truth. Only, that can only go on for so long. That's not a forever state of being. That's a, that's a concealment of the truth, a powerful truth. It's almost impossible that it's not obvious. So this is why we know for sure Mashiach is coming. Because we know that anything else is just an altered state of reality. It's not true. And the truth can only be hidden for a certain amount of time. I'm going to share my screen with you for one final text that I think is really beautiful. And uh, hopefully you'll find it powerful as well. This is going to be the last. I don't even know where I am right here. Let's, let's keep on going. This is going to be text number. Hold on. We're moving forward. Text 13, dream versus reality, um, 124, 125, it's very long. Bottom of 125, I'm going to skip. Okay, you know what, I'm going to read it. This is from a Fabreng, another Rebbe, and it's really powerful. We have been discussing the redemption, Mashiach, and the era of Mashiach. Some in the audience are genuinely astounded at this. The Rebbe is saying this live to an audience that might be astounded at this. He's saying, some of you are wondering what's going on, although for obvious reasons, they do not openly voice their amazement. And what are they, what are they astonished at? How can an individual, referring to himself, appear in public week after week and repeatedly and unceasingly discuss a single subject, the coming of Mashiach? In other words, the Rebbe is saying, I'm talking about Mashiach, and I know you're wondering, why am I still talking about Mashiach? Right. Moreover, this individual, again himself, emphasizes that he is not merely discussing the published Torah materials on the topic. Rather, he is discussing our righteous Mashiach's actual coming in our tangible reality here on physical earth. And immediately on this very day, Shabbat, Parsha Pinchas, 5744. That would have been in the, um, Pinchas would be in the summer of 1984. This individual further instructs others to sing on each and every occasion. May the holy temple be rebuilt speedily in our days. And he points out that speedily in our days does not refer to the very near future. It means quite literally speedily today. Certainly every Jew believes that Mashiach can come at any moment in keeping with one of the fundamentals of Jewish faith that says I wait his coming every day. Nevertheless, they wonder how is it justifiable to discuss this topic without letting 
let up and to emphasize on each occasion that Mashiach can come at that very moment. Is it not rather challenging to expect people to relate to Mashiach's imminence as if it were a tangible fact of our reality? So why does this individual, again himself, speak incessantly about this on every occasion and with such single-minded intensity as if to forcefully, forcefully ram the idea into the minds of the listeners? The Rebbe says the following, their conclusion is that all this is a beautiful dream and as we said in our prayers, may all my dreams be fulfilled, be positively fulfilled for me and for Israel, for all of Israel. Nice, but not realistic. If so, they claim there's truly no point in discussing one's dreams at such length and with such frequency. Here's what the Rebbe says to correct this, this line of thinking. The truth, however, is precisely the opposite. Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi, the author of the founder of Chabad, delivered a discourse based on the verse, when God returns the exiles of Israel, he, we shall be as those who have dreamed. He explained that our current state of exile is comparable to a dream, because in a dream, one sense of perception can tolerate the most contradictory and irrational things. In other words, and here's the punchline, our current reality is a dream, whereas the world of Mashiach is a true reality. And, and why is this, I'm, I'm jumping in for a second, why is this so? Why is our current reality a dream? Because our reality is a false reality. Our reality is the woodpeckers pecking at the piano. Our world is a world where people can go, go through the world, go through a whole lifetime, and never discover the truth of why this is here and what this is for. So our current reality is the dream. And Mashiach, an, an, a world that's aligned with truth, that's the true reality. And in a single moment, the situation could be reversed from one extreme to the other. Just like you can wake up, just like that. We can awaken from the dream of exile and enter the true reality, the actual state of redemption. If so, each and every individual present in this room certainly has the ability to make the redemption come immediately, not tomorrow or in the near future, but right now on this Shabbat, Parsha Pinchas 5744, before we even have the chance to recite the afternoon prayers. Simply stated, at this very moment, we open our eyes and see Mashiach in the flesh with us here in this room. The Rebbe is saying something really powerful. That at this moment, you and I have the choice of how we perceive the world. Do we see a mountain or do we see a treasure? Do we see a jungle? Do we see a garden? Do we see a piece of wood or do we see a piano? The truth is, the treasure is here. The truth is, this is a piano. The only thing holding us back is ourselves, is our perception. That's the only thing standing in the way. The Rebbe says, open your eyes and see Mashiach. Because what is Mashiach? It's awareness. Mashiach is the awareness of the truth. So what's the solution? Wake up. <laughs> we all have to wake up and see the true reality. This is not a mountain. It's a, it's a treasure. It's not a, it's not stam, a piece of wood. It's a piano. So today, we learned two really big ideas. I want to just summarize into two ideas. Number one, this world is holy and it's godly and our job is to reveal that truth by treating it as such and utilizing it as such. And number two, the second big idea we said was when we know this, all of our efforts in doing good deeds, mitzvot, will be with greater passion, purpose, and confidence and we'll be connected with the truth as Mark said before. We're connected with God and connected with truth when we live that way. So what we've seen today is that you and I can radically transform this world in an incredible way. And knowing this radically transforms us. Mashiach is not some pipe dream. It's the absolute truest state of our very current reality. That's why 
Our tradition, as we just read, likens the Messianic era to a cosmic awakening from a dream. The dream is the false, distorted reality. The sense that this world is not godly or not holy, that's the false reality. Mashiach is when we come to our senses. Friends, we don't live on a mundane mountain. We live within a divine garden, a beautiful treasure. This is not a big old piece of wood to destroy. This is an instrument to play the most sublime and beautiful melody. May we open our eyes and reveal the world's deepest truth. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me today. A quick announcement about next week's class. Next week, the topic is, we're getting there. So, right, so far, we've explored the end game, a spiritually and physically um, whole and healed world. But has this really been the direction that we've been headed all along throughout history? Haven't there been serious detours along the way? Are we really progressing toward this on a spiritual level, this uh, universal spiritual goal? So join me next week for a truly groundbreaking lesson as we take a walk through history and discover how everything, all of the ups and all of the downs that we've gone through in history have been part of this long walk, this long march, upward progression toward redemption. That's next week. So like we did in the first class where we talked about how things are physically improving, we're going to look at this from a spiritual perspective. How has spiritual progress been going over the last, I don't know, 5,781 57 181 years. How has that been going? Have we really been marching forward? What about the detours along the way? That is next week's conversation. A look at Jewish history through a deeper lens. Don't miss this. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Um, we'll take a few questions for a few minutes, and then we'll close it out. Yes. Richard, I see your hand up. Yeah, yeah. Next week is Shavuot. Next Tuesday is You are right. Next week... We will not be, ha yes, you are right, and that was the original intention that we were going to skip next week, because well, not skip, but not have class next week because of the holiday. You were absolutely correct. Um, and then last week, obviously, was not, um, that was not intended, so my apologies, but it looks like we will be convening in two weeks from tonight for Lesson 4. But either way, you don't want to miss Lesson 4. Quick announcement also, there is a beautiful program that was put together by Congregation Ariel and our very own helped with help by Jay Rosenheck who's right here with us tonight it's a it's an incredible program that brings that has brought together rabbis from around Atlanta to teach a class um, on zoom and broadcast the entire community in Atlanta and beyond so um, the information you can find the information Jay, remind us, how do we get to the, to the links? should be on www.kongariel.org. Perfect. Kong, like as in congregation, not King Kong with a K, but Kong with a C. Although that would kind of be cool also, but Kong, C-O-N-G-A-R-I-E-L.org. And you can get the link to 24 hours. Yes, 24 hours? Noon to midnight, tomorrow and Thursday. Noon to midnight. Oh, okay, yeah. Noon to midnight. So 12 hours and then 12 hours. Right? So you don't have to stay up to 3 a.m. to watch a class. So it's not 24 hours straight. All, all the shares are pre-recorded, so they'll be on demand as well. So they're on demand. You can watch them at any time. Spoiler alert, I, I taught a class on there. I had the, the uh, I was very fortunate and blessed to be... Prime time. Prime time. 
Primetime. My class will be airing Thursday night at 7 p.m., right? Again, Kong? Yeah, C-O-N-G. You know what? I'll put it into the chat, but it's C-O-N-G, Ariel, A-R-I-E-L, dot org, dot O-R-G. So let's do this, www.kongariel.org. I hope this is right, but I'm typing it to everybody. Um, well, what? I just texted you an image. Oh, what kind of image? No, of this. What's it, Ariel? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, the Torah Atlanta lineup. There you go. 7 p.m. So you can watch the evening news and some sort of, you know, negative stuff, or you can tune into my class. Spoiler alert, I'll tell you my subject. It's called the Kabbalah of Cheesecake. So if you like cheesecake and you like Kabbalah, so you can't go wrong with the Kabbalah of Cheesecake. And at the core of it, we're going to ask the question in that class that, I'm, that I taught, the core of it will be, um, why is it that we eat dairy foods on Shavuot? Why the custom for dairy? And if you think you know the answer, trust me. I mean, you might know an answer, but you ain't seen nothing yet because we got some Kabbalah going on. And when you got Kabbalah, you will never eat cheesecake the same way again. Guaranteed. I sent you a text of the, uh, all the presenters if you want to share that. Yes. My, my challenge is, I don't know how to, yes, yeah, Mark sent me the same thing. I don't know how to, how to share it from my phone to my computer, Zoom, but, um, yeah, but I have it here. I mean, I'll, I can hold it up. I can do that. I don't know if, I don't know if that's helpful. Perfect. Yeah, Torah Atlanta. So it's pretty cool. Different rabbis. Um, what, what do you have, 24 different rabbis? That's a lot of rabbis. That's a lot. That's a lot of rabbis. A lot of your colleagues, Rabbi Yeah, we got some Chabad rabbis. We have other rabbis. I mean, everyone. You know, um, I. I, I say it again. Yes. Yes, I will send it out. Um, I, I wanted to tell you. Along the lines of twenty-four rabbis, you ready? I have a joke for you. A priest goes to a barber and gets a haircut. The barber refuses payment from a man of God, and the next morning, he finds a dozen teacups at his door. An imam goes to the barber and also gets a haircut. The barber refuses payment from a man of God, and the next morning, he finds a dozen trinkets at his door. Well, a rabbi goes to the barber, and he gets a haircut. The barber refuses payment from a man of God, and the next morning, he finds a dozen rabbis at his door. So that is, yeah, you got it? Good. Fine. So not a dozen rabbis, but now we got 24, two dozen rabbis. Um, Donna, do you have something? We're just saying hi. Okay. Got it. All right, friends, it is great to see you all. I wish you a Shavuot Tov. Lots of blessings.